the subject for this evening's talk is tradition and the timeless. If I may, I'd like just to take a few minutes just to speak a little bit about the past, the past of around two and a half thousand uh, years ago, and the influence of tradition from past to present, and ways and means that we may consider the past and its relevance, if any, to the deeper truths of life. The story of Gautama Siddhartha is probably one of the most famous of all stories on this earth, of a disillusioned man of 29 years of age who is married, wife Yasodara, his son Rahula, very young, and it would seem a life which he was expected to fulfill as part of his duty, his dharma, as people would say in India, in which it would be to succeed his father, who appears to have been a, a lord or a king in the region of the Sakyan people, uh, north of this area. And with that lifestyle, as many, many others today and at that time were leading, with a very protected lifestyle, and, so, and surrounding, uh, surrounded with security, with attention, and the beneficial, beneficial things of life. And what these texts have told us is that in a relative period of a short time, he suddenly realized there was more to life than what he had been led to believe. And he was faced and found himself faced with aging and faced around him with sickness and with death. And seeing that, it struck him. It struck him very deeply. I have no doubt in my mind it wasn't the first time that he had observed that, he had noticed that. But on this particular occasion, in his 29th year, it struck him enough to shake up <coughs> the entire value system which he had adopted and had identified with. And it said then, it's also that he met as well, who is called a sadhu, a renunciate, those who have uh, given up the so-called worldly life, the life of materialism, and was on a quest, on a search. And then the story goes, and the Buddha related the events of this period of life, in the latter period of his life, in fact, to his close friend, Saraputra, who asked him to relate, what was going on for you when you were in the home life, living in the, the capital of the Sakyan kingdom? And the Buddha gave him a description of that, and the description as well of the six-year period in which he went through various forms of in the spiritual life that we would call extremism and what we might call in psychological terms today periods of what in spiritual language is called self-mortification and that in uh, uh, 
psychotherapy language would have to be called self-hate. And there was some belief in him that through self-hate, through denying of self, through engaging in a whole stream of very severe practices, that somehow the self would die instead of realizing that itself wasn't in fact dying. The self was being reinforced by it, by his fighting with it, by his rejection of it, by his uh, endeavoring to get rid of it. And then we are told in the text that he came here to this village and he sat down beneath this tree and during the night of sitting beneath the tree what came to him, he described it in metaphorical language he said what came to him was a light light about the truths of life what the essential truths of life were all about <coughs> and it wasn't obviously a, an emotional response it, it wasn't a, an intellectual formulation that took place, though that may have been uh, put down in later periods in that, but the truth of life that human beings are concerned with the unsatisfactoriness and suffering that occurs in life and in various ways and means we're constantly endeavouring to resolve this problem of existence and particularly of the suffering face of existence. And in the process of this meditative reflection, in this period of in inquiry, there something occurred from his description which he realised the end of suffering. He realised what that is and what I would call this evening. He realised that which is timeless. And therefore, he understood that all suffering is bound up and is connected and is always inseparable from the field of time. Suffering and time go together, indispensable for each other. From this, it is said, in the description which he has uh, given, that he wondered, he, he had a doubt, and again he used the metaphorical language which he used uh, frequently, and, he's, and he's, the thought arose in him that having realized this, having realized that which is timeless is not tied to suffering, having realized that, he wondered, could others possibly understand? Would it be worthwhile talking about this? And he was having some conversation here in this village with somebody on this very subject. And the person said to him, there are beings, there are people in this world, there are men and women in this world, with little dust in their eyes. Little dust in their eyes. means that there are men and women in this world who do have the opportunity, that receptivity, to understand, metaphor again, to see clearly that which is timeless, and therefore not of suffering. I'm somewhat encouraged uh, by that, and the way that I would look at that incident, incidentally, it doesn't always uh, uh, agree with the more orthodox, but I suspect 
that in that period of time of six years in which the Buddha's extremism, the fasting, the uh, uh, going uh, naked in the, in the cold uh, climates, the extremes of uh, endless of sitting posture, and all the other practices which are still engaged in here in India today, little has uh, uh, changed with regard to that. But I suspect that all of that also did something else to his psyche. And what it did to his psyche was that it alienated him from other human beings. That in this period of six years, though he had very few friends, he in fact was so self-obsessed with spirituality, with trying to find out what the truth is, it alienated him. And if he hadn't been so alienated, I would say that immediately after his realization and his awakening, he would have known immediately that there are little beings, there are beings with little dust in their eyes, there are people in this world who are uh, consistently ready and receptivity for that timeless, liberating truth of life. But those years of alienation and self-rejection, all that went with it, seemed right after the awakening, remember, right after the awakening, generated some doubt in him. And then the story goes, of course, that he went to Saranath, and for the next 45, where he met his friends, spoke with them, gave the teachings on uh, the middle way and on liberation, and for the next 45 years wandered in this area, near and far, giving the Dharma teachings, being the servant of the Dharma. Come the end of their life, at the age of uh, 80, there was, of course, as there will be, will there be a successor? Will there be somebody who has the responsibility, the mantle of taking uh, this on from one person to the next, from one generation to the next? And he refused all this. Had no appetite for placing the authority upon or with an individual and in his final breath under the uh, tree at Kushinagara, he said, work out one's salvation with diligence. Work out one's salvation, find liberation and be diligent about that. And that was the, the last breath of his life. So out, out of this, one might ask, well, what is tradition in all this? What, how does this tradition take place? Is the Buddha a uh, person who started the tradition of Buddhist tradition or Buddhist traditions? And to this I would say resolutely no, no, and no again. That the tradition of uh, spirituality, as he himself acknowledged and spoke of previous Buddhas, previous awakened human beings, one of whom incidentally, and maybe the one before him, I can't remember, was called Vipassi, Vipassi, rather like Vipassana. And then he spoke of the, the next uh, Buddha in the, in the future, and a Buddha in the future who would be known as a Maitreya. Many of you are already familiar with this. And sometimes it's not quite, I think, understood what Maitreya means and the deeper meaning of it. And it close and akin to Maitreya and Metta, and often translated as loving-kindness, 
loving kindness, sometimes to some people it feels very uh, kind of appropriate heart feeling of loving kindness. But I think to go a little bit more deeply into that, that it really communicates maitriya, metta. It communicates a very deep abiding friendship towards life. And my goodness me, as you and I know in this very fragile and vulnerable world that we participate in in life, that what is desperately needed, that the welfare of all life is very sustained, continuous friendship towards all beings. To be friendly towards life. And not just to move in a, a narrow circle, the narrow circle of friendship with which is nothing spiritually incidentally about it in terms of one or two close friends. That's normal. Normal, normal everyday mind has some close friends. And I remember reading in, in England in a poll that the average person in England when asked, how many close friends do you have? How many good friends uh, do you have? And it, something lo wo worked out at like 1.6. <laughs> sometimes I think I've met the one, and I think sometimes I may have met the point six. But, and one sees, you know, in a way, the tragedy. The tragedy that this lack, this absence of friends and deep friendships in life, that sometimes they say it's confined to one or two people that we abide with, we travel with, we live with. Sometimes that expands itself a little bit further and that might um, include those with a common interest, a spiritual interest, a particular tradition, whatever one said, where all of my friends are engaged in this particular activity, they're all in this particular circle, and one says, this is where my friends are. This is, these are the people that I can speak about, my experiences, my my concerns, my uh, values, my judgments, who and what I am. I would say that is still not the friendship that the Buddha speaks about. That is still not the friendship which is of, uh, of the, the Buddha mind. And therefore that friendship to expand has to break out of the circle. Has to break out of the circle. And that's a, a pivotal point in terms of his statement about the future of Maitreya Buddha meaning a friendship which is boundless an awakened friendship therefore it knows no definition no circle to it are we willing to cut through our circles are we willing to look in another way instead of, de of a defined way of people being in our circle, in our sphere of friendship and those who are out of it. <coughs> if so, we need to run deep in the heart for that, surely. Everyday heart, everyday mind is not available to a, a broken circle. Let me ask ourselves, there is, there is tradition. And some of you in this room, a number of you in this room, I don't know how many and what kind of percentage that is, but certainly a number of you in this room do have a close affection, as I do too, and, uh, and connection with spiritual traditions. And anybody who comes into 
Budgara and stays here for any length of time will be subjected to, will be exposed to the variety of traditions and to what all goes under the general name of Buddhism. And one sees in that, as one or two of you have asked in one of those, two of those notes over there, these things that we are engaged in during these days here, what connection does that have with the tradition? What tradition is that? What, what's, the back, what's the background to that? And we hear the concepts of Mahayana and Hinayana, we hear the concepts of Vajrayana and Theravada and Zen, and then one looks into those influences, beneficial and useless as some of them are, that one looks into all of those and then sees there are kind of subdivisions of all of that. And there's agreements and there's disagreements and a whole spectrum, a spider's web, webs of, of this, all in the name of tradition. And he says, well, how's my relationship to all of that? Is it that I find myself, for those of you who are connected with a tradition in any way, is it that you find yourself identified with that and what's the proof of identification with anything? It's simple. You put down everything else. This is easy. Ever, ever want to ask yourself, am I identified with something? Then the way that it shows itself is not that what you are identified gives you pain. No, no, of course not. What you are identified with, if it's a spiritual tradition, will give you a lot of pleasure. My guru, my practices, my teachers, my teachings, my lineage, my f this past which I am now participating, of course that would give any person probably a great deal of pleasure, a feeling of security, a feeling of being identified with. What's the proof of it? One can't see anything else with the same degree of friendship. One feels the need, the compelling need sometimes, to have to take all sorts of manner of digs undermine and judge and show and be uh, arrogant about and conceited about and, and find the faults therein, but not in what I am doing, please, no thank you very much. <laughs> and we say, oh no, I'm not identified with my tradition. No, no, I have no problems with my tradition, but those other people there really are misguided, deluded, lost, etc., <laughs> This is identification. Where on earth is the end of this identification? <coughs> then we also look at the past and relationship to the present. And the and I prefer, as I mentioned already, to regard teachings uh, and the, the, the wisdom tradition. That wisdom tradition goes back not only two and a half thousand years ago. It goes back thousands of years as the Buddha acknowledged that he belonged, shall we say, to that tradition. And uh, tradition is found wherever there is wisdom in this world. So we say there is the expression of a wonderful human tradition grounded in the truths of life. And some of you who have been listening for the last few minutes, if you have been listening for the last few minutes, sometimes it's an intolerably long day, I appreciate. And one says, well, mm, tradition and Buddhism and the past and all of that, it's not really of any interest 
to me. It, it has no influence in my life. It doesn't seem to affect me. I don't feel particularly associated with of any of that. And I think it's quite appropriate to consider that thought as your saving grace. And not to, to feel any sense of duty, any sense of obligation to be identified with any tradition. And why? Because tradition is in time. It's in time. And once when I heard, when I had a conversation once with, um, meeting with um, uh, Ram Das, most of you uh, will know, who has been to uh, India many times, teaches, of course, coming from uh, India, and has an ongoing passionate love affair with Indian spirituality, and has been, a, I think, a very wonderful uh, voice of uh, communication but encouraging people to look a little bit further than the, the everyday world. And in once in a um, uh, conversation with him, he quoted to, to, to me um, one of his uh, Tibetan teachers who had said to him, I am prepared in this world to give up everything, everything except one thing, and that one thing which I won't give up, and that is my lineage. And when I heard this, I kind of fidgeted on the chair a little bit. <laughs> Not wishing to tread toes again uh, in any, anywhere. And I would say to that, even the lineage must go. Even the tradition must go. Even that which is, has the many beneficial wholesome influences in it, which stem back thousands of years. Just remember you and I sitting here this evening together, particularly in Budgara, as a, a reminder, the thousands of years of spiritual practices have been taking place on this very soil, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, long before the Thai temple was imported, and all the other <laughs> and all the other ones around here there was sincere spiritual practice taking place care and attention to life breathing and experiences and i would say that easily in all of that the length of time of all of that and the, the value of continuity the value that you and I are the living generation of the expression of something which goes by. And even though the wish of the heart is that one considers the Dharma teachings, the, the wisdom tradition, in all of its diversity, one wishes to see run and flow into the next generation of men and women who say, stop and be still and look and look and die until one has looked into life. And even wish to see that, I would still say there are things more important. There is more important things of life than the wish to preserve things in time and give them continuity. And, and sometimes we need to be ruthless, and therefore I would say more ruthless than that particular Tibetan teacher was prepared to be. And in a rather, I feel with a certain trust and confidence here that 
in a rather remarkable way that if we don't concern ourselves with the past and with conservation and preservation and continuity in time, I think in our heart, in fact, it opens up a bit more space for us. It opens up a bit more space. When we say, as we have said e each day, each evening here, where's the situation of our living present? In this experience that takes place of the living present, things begin to arise within oneself. What arises within oneself, whatever it might be, is of time. Of course it's of time. Why? It's of today. What is today? It's not one of the three fields of time, yesterday, today and tomorrow, past, present and future. So during the rhythm of this particular day, whether you come from outside and you walked in straight through the chai shop, or as I said, some, someone said, please ask people coming to the talk not to climb over the fence to use the open gate. <laughs> there. <laughs> now, and the open gate is in, for some who don't know, is in the far right hand corner over there. But I would say, if the gate is locked, please don't hesitate to climb over the fence, dig a tunnel to get into the place, parachute to get into the place or whatever, because I say this with uh, uh, genuine um, modesty here, the Dharma of the timeless is worth listening to. Nothing to do with Christopher, I couldn't care less about Christopher, but the Dharma of the timeless is worth listening to, and how you get in here, fine by me. <laughs> <laughs> so there we experience, <laughs> there we experience uh, a day, so an event in time. <coughs> I look at my life, and I say, here I am, this human being, I have a heart, I have feelings, I have a mind, I have thoughts, I have a, I have a, a, a body, I have some awareness, some attention, and all of this makes me up to be who I am. I also have some awareness which is a little bit bigger than this, because I can look back, not just about what happened today, but what was happening to me some days and weeks and months ago. I can get a little bit space about my immediacy of my moment, because I can look back a bit and say, yes, I remember when, I remember when. And also have another capacity, I can make sometimes reasonable speculations and anticipations of what my future might be, what might happen to me, what might take place. I can't, and as the Buddha insisted frequently, s predict the future. This is the, one of the more extreme forms of arrogance of human beings. I can't make a prediction about the future, but I can use my capacity to assess my and to dwell upon and, s and say there is a possibility, there is a probability that this might happen at some date in the future, all of which is appropriate human thinking. So my, so my sense of who I am is involved in time and I can give some care to what was, and what is, and what will be. And I say, this is my life. And I look around me, whoever the eye is, I look around me in this world, and I say, it appears to be the same for everybody else. It appears that we're all living in time, and we have an awareness 
of our birth and our death. We know we will die. We know that whatever goes on with our life, it's subject to dissolution. <coughs> and that you and I, as we sit here and breathe our life and think and feel, feel our life and, and all the associations that accompany name and form, and all of this is temporary. It will go. As it's gone for every previous generation, and the one before that, and the one before that, that even this meeting together, and even all that goes with it, it will go. And though there may be, for you and I, a certain viewpoint about what is the cessation of this existence, of these faculties, what happens afterwards, no matter who speaks, and no matter with what apparent authority he or she may have, it will still be in the realm of a possibility. Nobody has the truth for the future. Truth doesn't lie in the time. And so sometimes we give reflection my life, it's, it's like a, a tiny wave on this great ocean, and this wave appears and, and passes in time. And I say, well, but what happens when the wave passes? Is it that another wave will come? Rebirth, reincarnation? Is it that when the wave passes, whatever the force of that wave, it will determine where I go forevermore, an eternal heaven, an eternal hell? Is it that when that wave passes, it's a scientific viewpoint, scientific materialism, it ceases, it, there is total, total extinction. Ooh, ooh, religious, scientific, philosophical, contemplative, or, or whatever. Who dare say the absolute truth is this will happen? There's not a human being, not a Buddha would, would say such a, make such a claim. And so there we live with a, a sense of the, the frame of our life, framed by birth and by death, framed by aging and by change, and we say, here I am in this. I'm living in this frame. And all the issues that go on in my life seem so exceptionally similar and familiar with countless others. And I look at my day today and I think what's been going on inside of me today, whoever the I am. And I don't know what's been going on beside that person beside me, that person who's sitting next to me. I can make some summary. I can draw some conclusions about <coughs> him or her. And and similarly for the person in front and behind. But I don't I can never be absolutely sure. And even when that person, when she or he, whoever it is, gives me a description and uses the language, which is such a wonderful thing for us human beings, but I can't really be sure that the words that she or he uses to describe their experience is actually really helping me to understand. Because perhaps my understanding of those words, the very same words, is different from her or his. And I wonder, my goodness, I'm living in this world, in this frame, and I don't know if I'm understanding myself or anybody. 
life taking seriously. Life is an extraordinary thing of human beings attempting to find the wisdom, attempting to find that understanding which not only understands ourselves but equally understands somebody else as well. Where is that wisdom going to come from? Where is that jewel which the Buddha spoke of for 45 years, morning, noon and night, where is that jewel of wisdom going to come from? Can we really understand? So we, we put some faith, maybe an appropriate faith, you must see through your experience, we put some faith in awareness. We say to ourselves in our experiences of sitting and walking, let me give attention to this whole field of experience, this whole sense of who I am, this human being who didn't ask to be born in such a place and such a time, who didn't ask to have this shape and this appearance and this gender and all of this, but who's living this life through, with whom there's a kind of relationship with this event, who's going to pass out of this life, and I, I or the awareness, I can be aware of this, which I call myself, or call who I am. <coughs> Many people will say to me, or they say to you, you are so-and-so, you are so-and-so, you are like this, you are like that, and we can agree and disagree, and all of that fits into this sense of who I am. And the extraordinary thing is we, we have this awareness, uh, attention or consciousness of this and we say, perhaps this being conscious of my existence, perhaps this being conscious is a key to the wisdom which is necessary, to the understanding which is necessary. What is it with the, when we are conscious of our experience we're sitting, suddenly a very painful emotion arises. It's got some content to it, something happened to you in the past or in the present, or perhaps it's some fear of something in the future. And, and, and that, that emotion, that, that wave, suddenly runs through the cells, commonly enough in these situations and obviously outside of them. And it seems like all of oneself is consumed in those times, or in this time, in that experience. And every thought inside of oneself is saying, when it's painful, I wish it would go away. My greatest wish in this moment <coughs> is that this which I am going through, which I am feeling, would finish. And sometimes we, we, we resort to the past, and it can be appropriate. What practice? What way? What method? What can I do? What can the friendship do? What can the connectedness do? What can the teachings, teachers, what can all of this offer to me? What, therefore, what can the tradition offer to me, which in some way or other will empower me, will give me the resources to say, yes, I can accommodate this way, no matter how painful it is. And sometimes, 
in the things of time, we use things of time, and we're extraordinarily grateful for the resources of time to deal with time, the things of time, the emotions of time. But sometimes, all the resources, all the methods, all the ways, all the strategies, everything, and all the interests, doesn't make a difference. That one can't sometimes, in experiencing the effect, pain, sorrow, fear, unhappiness, confusion, that sometimes, in experience that as an effect of circumstances, you and I, we can't find a, a, an application at all to stop it, no matter, even though the thought wants it to stop more than anything else in the whole world, it wants this feeling to stop. Surely that brings humility out of us. Surely it brings humility out of, out of the tradition, out of the past. Surely it brings humility for us out of our resources. Surely it brings it for the teacher. Surely it for the teachings themselves. That there is no guarantee that any particular thing is the answer to any particular experience. And sometimes our truth is, this experience is the truth. This is it. nothing else but this. Born of time, appearing in time, passing in time, the passing in time, one doesn't know the time of passing. Is one prepared to live with this not knowing the time of passing? No matter how painful that experience is, no matter that painful experience ends in a very death, is one prepared to abide with this not knowing the time of passing? Can few things in this life challenge us more? Let me say, where do we ask? Yes, but there's these things of time which I call myself, my existence. Where is the timeless though? What does that mean? What is the timeless in all of this? And is it that perhaps somewhere in that awareness, somewhere in that understanding, it seems to include something of the past, which tonight I'm calling tradition, or old experiences, which seems to include something of the potential for the future and what it might be and what might happen and seems to also and equally and significantly include something of the present right now. Hopefully you are listening to the Dharma talk and the speaker is connecting with you and that's the pr living present for you and I. And that in this, something of the past, something of the present and something of the future is being included. Could it that that awareness, that sensitivity, that potential which begins to embrace what is called the past, what is called the present, what is called the future, could therein be the whisper of the timeless which is, has no suffering to it? 
and with no suffering, no self. With no suffering, no birth and death. With no, with the timeless, no fear, no anxiety. And that's something, that sense, that's something which is accommodating and uh, intimating what is of past, what is of present, what of future, of future, something which is accommodating that perhaps therein there's an infinite discovery. <coughs> and this infinite discovery is what the Buddha proclaimed to his last breath. Tires, tirelessly spoke of this. Tirelessly pointed to this. The ultimate resolution of the whole human predicament. And thus, when we are exploring these things together, when we are inquiring these things together, I say, that which was two and a half thousand years ago, or five thousand years ago, and that which is tonight, and that which is in the future, is essentially non-different. The tradition ends in the timeless. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide with wisdom. So let us have two or three quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.